If you are ready to finally beat burnout, guess what? I know the guy who wrote the book. <laughs> Jimmy, let's show him. Hey, Jimmy, how are you? Good, good. I know, Jimmy, you've got the, the your actual book with you, right? I do. I, I carry it everywhere. It's in, it goes around with me in my pocket everywhere I go I, nowadays. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and we're going to get into this book in, in, in a few different levels, but I, I'm so excited to have, have met Jimmy a few months ago. Uh, we both just connected quickly and deeply on our passion for beating burnout, for building teams, for focusing on culture. And I learned a lot from my conversation with Jimmy. I wanted to introduce you to all of him to all of you. And Jimmy works with uh, pretty high caliber business owners. And uh, the book that you that he's got it's going to be available for what ten bucks. Eventually, it's, but... if, you, if you get it in the next day or two, it's four ninety nine um, for our it. early bird offer, and then it goes up to nine ninety nine after the weekend. So, I love um, it. So move we'll... quickly. This, this, yeah. Is it the scarcity? The scarcity thing. Move quickly to get your best deal. <laughs> we'll drop the link for anybody who is who is interested. Jimmy, I know that you've been asked this question before, but walk us through what inspired you to to write the book. Yeah, you know it's. It, uh, it is a question I get asked a lot, but I think it's a really important question because I'm not just some guy who decided to write a book about burnout because it's a trendy thing that's going on right now. Like everybody's hashtag burned out, right? It's it's yeah. a social media phenomenon. But the reality is in a previous life before I got to where I am now, I was a GM working in a, a large corporate organization and I was doing, you know, the 16 hour days and I was traveling constantly around different countries. I was a gold elite member on every airline. I was a platinum member on every hotel chain because I was never at home because I was always traveling with this job. And um, at the same time I was doing an MBA, at the same time I was renovating a house. At the same time, I was also going through a um, sort of failure of a relationship uh, mm. and uh, I, probably because of all the other things I was doing. And at the same time, uh, we were going through some pretty significant legislative changes that were really impacting the organization that I was working for so much so that my little business unit was the, the sort of cash cow entity of the wider organization. And 50% of our bottom line disappeared in one day because of a legislative change. So immediately the CEO comes to me and says, well, Jimmy, you know, you need to find a way of finding that extra 20, $25 million for us quickly mm -hmm. because the business will go under if you don't. And for context, 
I'd always been sort of promoted quickly through my career, but it meant I was ending up at these ELT and board level meetings as a 35, 36 year old. So I was 10, 15 years younger than anybody else in the room. And I'd been recruited in from outside the industry and told, we took a risk on you, so you need to make it work. So there's all this like massive pressure to perform self-induced and externally induced. And unfortunately, uh, that all came to a head after about two and a half years of not taking a break, working every hour that God sent to try and prove myself and keep the business afloat, keep the, t- the team afloat, keep everything moving, inspire, encourage and lead. Um, I just burned out completely. I woke up one morning and I could not go to work. I didn't have any energy left. And people often say, you know, what does burnout look like? The analogy I used was like wading through quicksand with your body and your mind. So you're physically exhausted. There's nothing left in the tank. But also mentally, you're like really slow, hazy. You can't make a decision. You can't think clearly. And it was a fairly horrible place to be. You know, as you can probably tell, I'm a quite an energetic, passionate guy. I was like a dead zombie. Uh, mm. I was broken. And, you know, the thing that inspired me to write the book was as I was... I took some time out. I, I left the, that job. I left my relationship. I left the house I was living in. I left everything behind and literally left New Zealand with a backpack and headed off for a journey of rediscovery and repair. Moved back in with mum and dad in the UK and uh, tried to work out how this happened to me. And as I started to talk to people, I found that it was happening to them too. And so I started sharing stories and ideas. And over the next couple of years, started sharing her stories and ideas coaching people helping people then was invited into organizations and coach and help people and eventually somebody said is there a book for this and I looked around and there wasn't and so I thought well if I've struggled with this and all the people I'm talking to are struggling with this and there doesn't seem to be a way of fixing it why don't I write something so what I did was I basically took all of the best stuff that we've been trying in organizations all around the world and we run we run a, a essentially a high performing culture program in organizations so we took all the best bits of what's making a difference that's easy and easy to apply and uh, we put that into the book and that was where the book came from mm. I, I love the whole story and I think that you know before we went live you were saying you know if I could if I could be lazy I would love to I only bring that up because I, I think that this idea of being burnt out is so connected to this work culture, like really work hall, hard culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's getting put on a pedestal so much that it's hard for we as people to admit, like, yeah, we don't want to work hard. Like in an ideal world, we wouldn't work hard. We wouldn't be burnt out. And sometimes this burnout is like a badge of honor. It, it, and I say I, I say flippantly hashtag burnout because it's like the sexy thing to be. It's almost like oh I work a twenty hour day. Oh yeah. I'm burned out. You know it's the new thing. Um, I, I really want to be clear though. I would love to be lazy because like who doesn't love? I mean I live in Mexico in Cabo and and who wouldn't love yeah. to just be chilling out on the beach with a margarita in the sunshine all the time? But I can't be because I've got this message to share. Because I can't be because I've got this massive purpose mm-hmm. to what I'm doing. Like I'm literally trying to stop people going through what I went through, which is having to leave a job, leave their relationship, leave their home, leave everything that they've built behind 
because they literally cannot cope anymore. Like my job is to get you off the ledge and keep you functioning and help you rebuild to the point where you're actually seen as that high performer, the high achiever that you maybe have been previously or that you aspire to be. Yeah. And so I can't be lazy. But the reality is I think a lot of us, and it's interesting, you know, you ask that question, a lot of us are caught up in the, it's, it's a badge of honor to be burned out, but also the people that we see who burn out the most frequently are the driven high achievers who have high performance anxiety. Maybe they struggle with imposter syndrome. Maybe they've always been a high achiever and for some reason they've come off the boil slightly and that's making them anxious. And so they're pushing even harder. You know, they're working the evenings and the weekends and going even harder. Or maybe they've had a change of context. You know, maybe they've gone from being an employee to self-employed and they're like, I have to make it work because everybody's leaning on me or expecting me to provide. There's all these stresses that can lead to burnout that are not necessarily just because it's cool or there's an expectation of working hard, but we do a lot of it to ourselves. And a lot of the stuff we talk about in in the book and the work we do is it's a lot of it is about the decisions that you're making to, uh, you know, do I work or do I not work? Do I give up weekends or not? Do I give up my hobbies or not? Do I not see my friends or not? Um, it's those little micro decisions that start to stack up over time that means you're spinning a thousand plates or holding a thousand one kilo weights at arm length and and that's what catches up with you over time yeah you know as a lawyer as well one word that is constantly around just language wise in my brain is is risk Mm -hmm. and as you were talking it seems like there is this when we have all of these plates spinning we're doing all of this stuff there is there is just this high pressure risk of i can't let everything drop Mm -hmm. but there's also a risk to continue going down that trajectory and and, you know you sharing your story is such a powerful example you know there's so many people out there who are the metaphorical hamster on a wheel yes and you know like any like like we've all seen the hamster on the wheel when you start running it's kind of gentle and it gets faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and then it falls off yeah. um because it can't keep up any longer or it's exhausted and the the reality of burnout is it's it's kind of like that you know you start at a steady pace maybe in a new job new new business new thing and then you pick up more and more and more pace and and, the, and what we see with the the organizations we go into when we do the diagnosis a lot of it is we keep adding things, we keep adding tasks, mm. we keep adding priorities and we're not putting other stuff down. You know, maybe we're not putting the stuff down that we used to do on our old job, but now we've been promoted. And so we we probably should have handed that stuff off, but we kept it because it we enjoy doing it and it made us famous and we're good at it and we, and we get the rewards and recognition for doing it. Yeah. Or maybe the, the world has shifted and so those reports that we used to do, we don't need to do anymore. Or those um, priorities, strategic priorities, those accounts we used to be chasing, maybe they're not the ones to be chasing. But because we have a relationship, we still make time for lunches with them or whatever it could be. Right. You know, it's that what are we letting go of to make space for what we need to do now? And often we don't. We just add and add and add. And, and again, we're in this. We have to achieve. We have to not drop the ball anywhere because the risk of failure is so great. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a worry and and people when they get to a certain point in the burnout process they it we say we can't see the wood for the trees you know if you're skiing through a forest what you should be looking for is the snow not the trees but people end up just seeing trees yeah mm. 
So I'm, I'm hearing a big first step for anyone listening who is feeling burnt out is to take a look at what you can let go of. Yeah, I mean, I literally have people write down a list of what's everything you're working on right now and what's the purpose of all of those things. Mm. And what we tend to see is you end up with the purpose split into kind of three different answers. There's the I'm 100% sure I know exactly why I'm doing this and what it's for. There's the I think I know why I'm doing this uh, and I'm pretty sure I know what it's for. And there's the I have no idea why I'm doing this, but Mm. somebody told me to do it. Mm. And and so then the question is, well, what if you just stop doing that and let's see what happens? So I want to zoom in on that third bucket, because I mm. think when you're working with business owners and their response is someone told me to do that. A lot of times, especially like in the if you're an employee, it's like, oh, my supervisor, my boss, my whatever told me to. But if you're the business owner and you're saying it to yourself, there might be a coach that you're working with a consultant, um, someone else, a, a business colleague who's giving you some advice. Um, do you have anything to add to that perspective of um, when you as a business owner realize that you're doing certain things that someone else, not a boss or supervisor, told you to do, um, how, is, is you, how can you as a CEO effectively and powerfully think about that? And is it okay to not follow all of what your coaches tell you to do? Sure. I mean, to me, the first chapter of the book is all about purpose. And I, I, we give that book, that chapter away because I think it's so important that you get purpose right and you work on purpose. And so if you're, the, if you're leading an organization and you're not sure of the purpose of the thing that you're doing, how is anybody else sure? And so what you're doing is creating ambiguity immediately at the top of the organization, which only cascades through the business. And so you're like, well, like, we do this thing, but I'm not really sure why we're doing it. So I'm therefore not granular about how I'm allocating resources, time and effort to it. But then everybody else is going, well, I'm not really sure what he or she needs. So I'll just kind of do a little bit more to wrap around what I think they need. Yes. That's extra effort. And then, oh, and that's going to create a couple of extra meetings because we've got to try and clarify what it is we need. So that'll take some more time. And then there'll be some more emails that are created from those meetings while we're trying to really land it is what it is we're doing. And you can see how this creates a, almost like a, a root network of, of extra work that we don't need to have. So if you're the CEO of an organization who's doing something and somebody said, oh, you have to do this, you, know, you, you really should be investing in blah, or you should be yeah. really focusing on this, then I would go, well, what's the purpose of that? Mm. And I think the other significant factor that we see with leaders and organizations is they feel like, well, I'm the boss. I have to know all the answers and have all the expertise and, yeah. and be the one that is the solving all the problems. And what we see with there's a really transcendent moment in your leadership uh, journey where you go from being the expert to being the enabler. Mm. And so it's saying, OK, leadership team whether that's one person or seven people or 50 people, you go, okay, managers, leadership team, this is what I think we need to do. What have I missed? What else could we do? Who's got some ideas? Let's talk about this. Let's throw this around a little bit. Who's got some experience in this space? Yeah. And, and letting go of the need to be the expert in favor of being the decision maker. And all you're doing is you're saying, well, hey team, let's throw this around a bit and I'll make a decision once I've got some more information. And, 
there's a massive cascade of effects that come off this one little shift. It's called the vulnerability shift and the instigation of the vulnerability loop. And there's some deep neuroscience that comes sits behind it. But essentially, you're saying to your team, I want your input. And as soon as you say to people, I want your input, they start giving their input. And the more you do it, the more they start sharing. And there's a whole, say, there's a whole productivity shift that comes behind this. But also, you're going to ask people to say, what have I missed? And they'll go, well, what's the purpose of this? And if you can't articulate that, you can go, you know what, I'm actually not sure. Let's work that out together. Then we start to see clarity come. And when we've got clarity, we can create agility. And when we've got agility, we can create vision and productivity. I think that you're also holding the space for your team to stop operating from a, I, I can't mess up. I can't do things wrong. Because when you start really asking your team, hey, what's the purpose here? What, like, what about this? And you do it like in an empowering way, not a, in a sarcastic or whatever way. Sure. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to once they shifted to a a better culture team, they were like, oh my gosh, this is night and day different than just constantly being told that I'm doing X, Y, Z wrong. I'm so focused on not making a mistake that I know I'm not doing my best work. Mm-hmm. Which immediately closes people down into a fear comp and, and yes. um, mitigation space, which is never going to open up their brains. We, we talk in... In, in our world about the difference between operating in the prefrontal cortex and or the amygdala, um, the two parts of the brain. In simple terms, am I using my wizard brain or am I using my lizard brain? Mm. And w- when people become scared and worried about making mistakes and, oh my God, what's the boss going to say? Am I going to get told off for this? Am, if I make a mistake, am I going to get fired? The wizard brain shuts down and the lizard brain takes over. And the lizard brain, is as it says on the tin, is like a lizard. It's not very smart. It keeps you alive, but it's not very smart. Yeah. Uh, whereas the wizard brain is responsible for making great decisions. So if you're a leader who is saying, you know, we can't afford to make mistakes, team, and we can't get this wrong, and if you're doing that to yourself as well, unfortunately, your brain can't hear the difference between you saying it and somebody else saying it. So it's like your boss is saying it to you, even if you're saying to your team, we can't afford to make mistakes. Your brain hears that too, and immediately shuts down the prefrontal cortex, activates the amygdala, which is the fight or flight response. Yes. ramps up all the hormones in your body for stress which is great for surviving saber-toothed tigers mm. it's not so great for running a really effective board meeting and you become mm. a lesser operator now if you magnify that across your whole organization and they're all being lizards imagine the drop in productivity you've got yeah mm. and and you've got some some stats that you pulled around those consequences right of, of a huge being super lizard brained Huge. I mean, there's there's so there's a really famous um, or large employee engagement organization that operates globally called Gallup, and they do um, employee engagement surveys in organizations, and then they roll that data up. And there's some really terrifying statistics that between 74 and 76 of employee 74 and 76 percent of employees in organizations are disengaged, which means they're just turning up for the paycheck. They don't care about your business. They don't care about putting the extra effort in. They're just literally going through the motions, either waiting for the next job to come along or they've got nothing better to do with their lives and this is an easy option. Are they going to be producing their best stuff? And then you add in the layer of fear over the top of that that we can't afford to make a mistake. 
Are they going to be doing their best work? And then you add in the fact that you're not making clear decisions because you're working all the hours that God sends and you're tired out and you're maybe burned out and you're struggling as well to be the best version of a leader that you could be. Are you leading the business really well, making good decisions, creating clarity for them to do their best work? No. And so you can just see how we're like chipping away at the product, the potential of your organization because of the little choices that you make on a daily basis. And that choice could literally be the difference between do I close my laptop at five o'clock or do I work till 1 a.m.? Do I give up my weekend to do that extra piece of work or do I recharge with my family so I can be clear headed on Monday. And there's these mm. micro decisions that we make and, and recovering from burnout and creating high performance cultures is not like turning a light switch on. It's not like a big crank handle. You can suddenly go, we've gone from burnout to high performance. It doesn't work like that. It's more like a seesaw that you have to ease in and keep the pressure on, but it's a gradual shift. Mm. And if you take the pressure off, you're going to go back to the burnout culture. This is all so well said, and I want to go back to just what you said about, you know, there's so many of these employees over 70% that are, you know, just clocking into work doing the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be clear here because there are a lot of business owners, especially at the 250k to a million dollar mark that are like, it's so hard to find good work these days. Uh, when I hear Jimmy talking about these people who are just coming in and clocking, that sounds like all these people that I'm interviewing that I'm not hiring because they don't seem like good fits. Can you walk us through the potential difference between a candidate that you're interviewing that might not be a good fit and someone who could be a good fit with a high performing culture in place? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. and amazingly i used to actually run a recruitment function for one of the big banks in new zealand and we had this oh, exact cool. we had this exact process when we would be screening candidates and you know to me there's a big difference between interview technique and real results mm. so the first thing I would do is if I, if I was interviewing people for a, you know, a, a business at that level, the 250 to a million dollar level, is I would get them doing something that they're going to be doing in the job mm. because they can talk a good game, sure, and inter people can practice interviewing. But I would say, well, here's a thing that we do in this job. Why don't you have a crack at it? And it doesn't really matter where they get to in that thing because they might not be experienced in the thing that you're asking them to do, but it's how they approach it. And you can say that we'll be in the room We'll be in the room. If you want to ask questions, ask questions. Well, if they start asking questions, that's a good sign, right? If they just go and turn their back and they start working away on it, then maybe they're an independent operator and they're scared to ask questions. So there's a cultural thing there to me. Um, then I would start saying, can you walk me through what you've come up with and see how they communicate it and see how they enable it? Is there anything that would help you make your decisions more effectively or would help you get to the answer more effectively? Do they have the ability to think about involving others and solving their problems and, and work collaboratively and collegially with their, their, their peer members, their team members versus being independent operators? Because one of the biggest things we see is siloization in organizations, my thing. And then say, I would say something along the line, what do you think the purpose of us setting you this, chal this challenge is? And what do you think the value of the solution could be? Do they think strategically? Do they understand purpose? Do they understand value? I think 
those little work-based examples are far better than tell us about a time when you had to chase a, face a really difficult challenge, which is just a rehearsed answer, and it's probably about as it's worth about as much as the paper it's written down mm-hmm. on. You know, the to me that would be something I would be looking for. Equally, um, the power of really good reference checking um, is is probably underestimated, and too too many people relinquish that responsibility to the HR person, the recruiter, and like, well, you're just about to hire this person to work for you for forty to sixty hours a week. Um, do you not want to have a chat with somebody that they used to work with and 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 just just talk like it's not again it's not about the canned questions it's like tell me about them tell me about how they work with other people tell me about how these things go tell me about how they deal with being challenged tell me about how they cope with failure um i would want to know all of that stuff and then if i can just kind of extend your question yeah. The the significant piece of research we found in the book around the the third chapter, which is all about connection, that makes a massive difference to creating engagement and productivity in new hires, is onboard your new people really effectively. Mm. And too many people, uh, and we see this in organisations from you know twenty five up to three four hundred thousand employees. They go, oh my God, Joey, thank God you're here. Um, here's your desk, here's your computer, crack on. And, and then that person's in and on with it. And, and how are they going to be your best and highest performing employee when they've no idea what they're even meant to be doing? Yeah. And they spend the next three or four months panicking because they don't know what they're doing, living in their lizard brain because they don't know what they're doing, trying to kind of work it out from all the people who are around them who are also going, oh my God, we were covering Sarah when she left and now you're here, Joey, thank God, you can have all the work back as well. Mm-hmm. And let's grab a lunch or a coffee when we get time, but I'm really busy right now. And we see all these things start to happen and we go, well, why, we wonder why these people are not performing at their highest level and why they're not sparking for your business doing the best for you. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to that word perfectionism which we talked about before we went live. Um, and I know that you have quite a few things to say <laughs> around how... About everything. <laughs> well, but I, but I mean that as such a compliment. I think that when it comes to perfectionism, like you said, if, if step one of beating burnout is letting go of stuff, it seems like that next step is let's be okay with stuff going wrong more from that list that we are committing to do. Yeah, and you know, there's no such, in my world, in, in our world, the Ways of Working community, there's no such thing as a mistake. There's wins and there's lessons. And if you don't win, you're one step closer to knowing how to win than you were before. So either way, if you try some new stuff, you're one step further ahead than you were before. Even if you've financially maybe gone backwards a little bit because you've invested something in something and didn't work out, you will, you've got to double down on the lessons learned process. You know, if you just fail and move on, fail and move on, fail and move on, you're not taking the lesson. Yeah. And you'll keep failing. If you interrogate the what went wrong, why did it go wrong, what can we take out of this, what can we do to improve next time, that little investment blip that you made that was maybe a bad decision, a bad hire, a bad project, whatever it might be, is going to pay dividends in the end. And, and you know, you and I work in this world as well. You know, we try stuff and it falls flat on its face, but then yeah. we debrief and interrogate it and then we try it again and it's a little bit better. And then we try it again and it's a little bit better. If you, if you don't try, 
how are you ever going to know? And the the piece the piece that also limits people is that we talked about the perfectionism, the fear of it going wrong. Well, what about if it went right? Yeah, yeah. We as leaders, well, we as leaders tend to you know we've come up the hard way, right? We've got all the battle scars and the experience, and we've we've made all the mistakes. And so when this younger member or more junior member of the team comes along, goes, I really want to try this. We're going to go, no, that's too risky. I've seen it before. And, and they sh- we shut them down. And that's probably the last time they'll come to us to try and improve our business. Because they'll go, well, every time I go to John, he just says no. So I'll go find somewhere else where they, they're prepared to say yes. So immediately I've, I've reduced the productivity of the team and the innovation level of the team. Instead, what if we took that, that member of the team and we said, okay, I, inside my head, can see some big glaring holes in this, but my job now as the leader of the organization is to help you experiment and explore. So if we were doing this with our kids, then we would say, wow, that's really interesting. Let's take a look at it and work it out. And we'll pull it apart and we'll look at it from different angles and we we'll go, well, what about this? And what if we switch this bit out for this bit? And what could be the consequence of that? And what do you see being the goal? And what might make this fall over uh, that we could prevent against now? And have we considered this variable? And, and all the time we're doing these questions, we want our child to go, oh my God, dad, I never thought of that. I'm going to go do it differently or I'm going to try it. And we want our employees to do the same, right? We want them to go, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Let me go away and think about it again and come back. But by doing this encouragement, we've got a bigger chance of them actually learning and growing and solving more complex problems, which means that you can hand some more complex problems onto them to focus on more complex problems that only you can deal with. And we start to create a high productivity culture. Equally, they're enthused to bring you stuff because like, when I go to Joey and I throw an idea at him, it's like we're in this like mini incubator room and we get to really unpack my cool thinking. And do you know what? The people who come up with the coolest stuff at Google are the people who are like the renegades and the, and the, 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 the innovators who go, I've got this idea for this like email thing or I've got this idea for like talking on video to people. Yeah. And somebody's like, cool, let's, let's play. Let's throw that around and see if we can make it work versus okay, oh, no, that won't work. Let's slow down here because this is really good. <laughs> I, for anybody who's listening who's like, oh, that's, that's me my default is to point out why things won't work to be resistant to be stubborn to be perfectionist is the goal to work on your mindset so that you change that that default setting so that when stuff happens you're just naturally more inclined to say yes more or is it and i'm I'm genuinely curious or is it a sense of your brain's always going to be your brain how can you detach more from what the voice inside your head is automatically saying and quickly just reframe yourself. I think a it's different... a combination of both. Okay. So, you know, if your default setting is always no, because you're the expert, you're the one with all the experience and you're the only one who knows the answers, well then congratulations, all of the problems and all of the issues are going to be down to you and your business to yeah. solve because you're not letting anybody else try anything. And so there's a piece there around saying, instead of saying default no, it's just the, the question that we ask is, how might we? How might we make this work? How might we shift this around? How might we look at this from a different angle? And what we want to do is try and create a team around us of problem solvers. And the only way they can solve problems is to solve problems, right? So if we all say no, they won't solve that problem. They'll just leave that problem there. And you'll have to solve that problem for them. 
So it's in seeing every one of these members of your team who bring you a, hey, what about if we try to do this as an opportunity to try something new? Yeah. As an opportunity to encourage their growth and development so they can take on more complex problems. Because we all learn by doing and, le- and taking the lessons out of it, right? Whether it's dating the wrong person, making a good business decision, yeah. whatever it might be, we all learn through battle scars. So they need some battle scars. So, again, as a, as a CEO of a less than million dollar company, let's say that someone on the team comes to me and they're super excited about an idea. And let's just to, to, to make this an extreme example, let's say that they have an idea of how they can redo our bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. And when we hear it, we're like, oh no, that's gonna break the entire software. Is, are you saying that we say, yes, that's a great idea. Let's try it and see what works. Or do you create some type of a container or have some type of a response to talk through things out. I mean, how can you create a lesson learned there without spending time and resources on something? And this is a street, an extreme example, but if you know that a, a, an idea is not going to be workable, what's, a, what's an effective way to respond to that without reinforcing that stubborn perfectionist culture yeah, that you're trying to avoid? That is a really good example to work through because the consequence, right, is it's going to break the bookkeeping software. Yeah. So then my my initial approach would be how do I help the person who's brought me that idea see that it's going to break the bookkeeping mm-hmm. software and work together to come up with a solution that wouldn't break the software? So maybe there is merit in their idea. Maybe there is a productivity improvement in their idea, but we've got to help them go, oh, my God, but if we do that, that'll break. Yeah. We've got to get them to that point without going, no, we can't do that because it'll break it. Like, I know this and you should just know this as well because then we just shoot them down. But yeah. if we say, that's a great idea. Let's have a think about that. Let's walk that through, shall we? What happens when we do this bit? How might this be impacted? What's the risk to the bookkeeping software if we suddenly make this big change? Yeah. And they'll go, oh, well, actually, it's quite risky. Okay, so how might we minimize that risk? Oh, well, what we could do is maybe create a sandbox environment where we trial it for a couple of months and see what happens. Maybe we just do it on one cost center and see if we can do a mini pilot. Maybe we um, outsource to an offshore bookkeeper who's relatively cheap to do it in a dummy version or a virtual version using some of our data. And we could just do that. You know, we, we go, well, how can we make this a manageable level of risk versus the catastrophe if it goes wrong? Yeah. And what I'm certainly not saying in, in, in organizations is let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, let's take such massive risks that just because we want to be curious and enable people. Sure. No, that's not what we're saying at all. We're saying the, the how might we question is how might we do this with an acceptable level of risk? How might we just tweak it slightly? So the catastrophe is not great, but it means that you get some experience. And there will be occasions, and, and I've done this as a leader, where I've gone, I know that you're going to fall flat on your face by doing this, but the only way you're going to learn is to fall flat on your face. Yeah. So the, the cost to me is a couple of days of your time and effort. And I'll say, well, look, let's walk through the risks. Let's walk through the challenges. Let's walk through what might go wrong. How are you feeling about this? And they're like, oh, I really want to try it. Cool. Okay, well, go ahead, give it a go, and let's 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 loop back in a couple of days and see how it's going. And then I've had that conversation with that person. And they're going, oh, my God, it was a disaster, and I had to do this, this, and this to fix it. Okay, so where are we at now? Well, actually, I've got it working now. 
oh, super cool. Well, that's amazing, right? Because they've gone into, I've got to try and make this work problem solving yeah. mode. But if, if I'd have just said, no, that's not going to work because, then I've limited them that we're never even going to start. We're never going to find out anything. And actually by them trying, failing and fixing, we've now got this, this possible or positive shift. Yeah. So yeah, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't change everything at once. Don't change too big, but try and allow people to do something that's, you know, where you work alongside them to try some new stuff. Being curious is a great thing. We encourage our kids to be curious. We want our employees yeah. to be curious. It's where innovation comes from. That's really great, Jimmy. I, I love, I love the way you, that example brought you back to just like, how can we be curious? I think that's a really good word to, to keep at the forefront when, when you're interacting with your team. One thing that you said that I, I loved before we went live was there was some LinkedIn back and forth that, that you did around someone asked a question of, is it possible to create a, what was it, a stress resistant oh, team? Can you create a burnout resistant culture? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so someone asked that and then you saw it and, and commented? Yeah, so I was doing a live yesterday for, um, for the launch of the book and we talk through you know some of the symptoms of burnout and and some of the um some of the change of paradigms that people could go through and so one of the questions was could you create a burnout resistant culture by using the book and my immediate response was well do we want to be resistant because resistant is well we're kind of we're an unbreakable or we're a hard mm. force but any material if you put enough pressure is going to break you know even if you find the diamond if you put enough pressure on it that diamond will crack it will break and in my view it would be far better to create a burnout resilient culture mm -hmm. so people are going to dip into some of the small um, symptoms and tendencies of burnout because we want a, a group of people who are trying new things who are pushing themselves who are highly productive who are driven and motivated and want want to succeed so they might, you know, they might give up a little bit of their personal time or they might take some compromises to, to deliver for you. But the resilience comes from and they can soak that up and then come back again because we've got an infrastructure or a culture in our business that allows that recovery period. We're not a business that's sprinting for three, four, five years. We say, hey, look, we've got a 90-day sprint. At the end of the project, we're going to take a couple of down weeks. We're going to recover everybody. Everybody can just rest up. Um, we're a business that encourages people to go home on a Friday at lunchtime so they can get better time with their family, do their admin on a Friday afternoon so they can have the weekend with the kids and sports and hobbies and friends or whatever. That's a burnout resilient culture, right? So we're saying we, we have some of the push into that space because let's face it, the beginning of burnout is actually high performance and then it becomes high performance at what cost and then the cost becomes too much. So we go, okay, we'll step into that zone We'll grow and we'll develop and then we'll be resilient enough and then we'll come back, we'll flex. And it's that sense of flexibility and recovery versus resistance. We're like, no, 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 oh, that's too much, I've snapped. And I don't think it's possible with the unknown environments that we're yeah. operating in in the business context right now to be resistant because you, you know, it's like building a fortress, but then the battle moves. Uh, and mm -hmm. so you've you put all these effort into building this giant castle with these big walls and, and moats yeah. and you put all this effort into being really resistant to attack and then warfare changes and we're suddenly in planes or missiles and and the business world is like that right now we've got the development of AI we've got the the tail of the pandemic we've got supply chain issues we've got economic pressures we've got interest rate changes macroeconomic conditions 
all of these things mean that if you spend all your effort trying to build a resistant culture, a fortress against burnout, and then something shifts, like, oh my goodness, we'll all have to be in a pandemic again, or there's a new global warming suddenly starts to affect us with major weather events, and you're, you've put all this effort into being resistant, then are you resistant to the new thing? Possibly not. If you're resilient, then you can soak the punches up a little bit and then come back, wow. then you're far more likely to have a better culture. That's really, really good. I love that shift from trying to be resistant to just resilient around burnout. When, when you think about what's in your book, how you've helped business owners, I mean, we've already covered so much from letting go to not being perfectionist around the stuff that you're saying yes to, to being adapting more of that stress resilience or burnout re re resilient mindset. Any other just kind of heavy hitters or, or pillars or like main takeaways before we start to wrap up? You know, we've covered a lot actually that's in the book in sort of in, in, in various ways. Probably the piece we haven't talked about is, is the last chapter and we deliberately leave it till the last chapter, which is downtime. Mm. And, you know, so taking time off. And, and the reason that we leave it till last is I use the analogy of standing outside in a thunderstorm and then you go in a house for a couple of minutes, which is your two weeks vacation to recover from burnout. And then you come back out, you come back to work and you step back into the thunderstorm because the thunderstorm's still going, right? And you're going to get wet. So even though you dried off for a couple of weeks, you're going to get wet because the conditions are the same as when you left. Mm. And so we have this situation in lots of businesses where we think that just signing somebody off on sick leave or taking two weeks vacation is going to fix all of the other issues that... Um, that come before that and so the, the other issues being a lack of purpose everybody being scared a lack of abundance essentially a lack of connection a lack of exploration and curiosity if if those things aren't solved two weeks vacation is not going to fix it and right. so the what we talk about is shifting the mindset of downtime from being time off or being lazy or taking vacation to preparing to perform time and we took this mm -hmm. concept from high performance sports and there was a really good um there's a really good case study that was done by stanford tier one basketball teams where they basically split the squad into two groups and they said one of the teams you're going to train as normal rest as normal do everything as normal the other team we want you to make sure you get at least eight preferably 10 hours sleep per night one day a week, you're not going to be doing any basketball training, but we're going to be doing meal planning. We're going to be doing um, food prep. We're going to be doing measurements and all your stats, all your metrics. Yeah. And, and over the course of the season, the group that were preparing to perform outperformed the supposed A team by 22%. So they were 22% better at the end of the season, less injuries, higher score rates, high, uh, faster on the court, more resilient, lower injury and illness rates because they were preparing to perform. And it was that. Sh and when, we, when they were initially asked to say, well, you're going to take a day off, they were like, oh, I don't want to take a day off because I'm going to be falling behind my peers who are training every day and working out every day and doing all these things every day. And then they said, well, okay, well, we're not, it isn't a day off though. It's a, it's a performance preparation day to make sure you can perform on the other days. And they were like, oh, okay. And I think it's that really important shift in, in your, mind, your mind as a business owner and also in and ingratiating it into your culture that you all need 
time to perform to prepare to perform Mm. so your weekends are important your evenings are important and we talk a lot more about the neuroscience of how the brain works and recharging the mental function but essentially it's like you need preparation to perform time to be the best leader you can be you know with the best in the world even if you're an olympic athlete you don't run your olympic event 365 days a year you run it yeah 30 times a year and the rest of the time you're in training right but as a business leader we're like i have to be on monday to friday 15 hours a day and weekends and never take a vacation we're like well we're wondering why we're struggling to deliver when we're trying to outperform olympic athletes Mm. (laughs) i i think part of what i'm hearing you say too is um there is a difference between taking time off to just refresh and taking taking time like taking time off being on a beach reading whatever book you want versus intentionally prepping for going back into the workplace like there's a there's a The, when you gave that metaphor of the of the the thunderstorm in the house, it almost made me feel like, oh, what what I think is so cool about that analogy is it almost makes it feel like for everybody who's experiencing burnout, it's like you're treating like you, you should be living outside with a temporary exit to go back in home. No, you should versus, be hanging on for your vacation. Versus you belong inside, especially so that when you go out, you can do your best. And would it be amazing if as you walk out the door, you have the headspace and the mind space to go, if I took an umbrella, it would be easier when I get back out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the the key piece here is the, the interim preparation to perform times that we encourage executives to have are... Um, and we can go a layer deeper into the neuroscience if you like, but essentially it's in your brain, there's two TV channels. There's the executive TV channel, which is solve all the problems, do all the things, manage the business. And the other TV channel is the one that comes on when you're in the shower daydreaming or you're in that kind of half asleep phase or you're washing the dishes and you're absentmindedly something comes to you. That's the other TV channel. And it's fascinating that those two TV channels cannot be watched at the same time. So you're either in one or you're in the other one. It's like the old days in the 80s when you could only watch one TV channel at the same time. Um, so you need as a leader you need to be accessing the daydreaming channel because Mm. if you don't access that daydreaming channel you burn out the other channel and so it's those micro pauses that you put into your life and for example we did a a project with a very large American retail business and we encouraged them to take 20 to 45 minutes once a week just with a notebook to go and sit in in the park under a tree go sit in a cafe leave their laptop and phone behind in the office and these are these were executives with like three or four thousand people each. And we said, just take 20 to 45 minutes off to daydream and just write down whatever comes up. And if nothing comes up, don't write anything down, but then just come back to the office. Yeah. And over the course of 12 months, we measured where they sat in the talent matrix, how many of them actually survived the exec transition program, how many of them um, were burning out. And of course, the ones who were like, I don't have time for 20, 45 minutes. Like I have 3,000 people and I get 5,000 emails a day and I'm super busy. I don't have time for that. 
they were the ones that burned out. They were the ones that didn't survive and they were the ones that were seen as the low performers or lower performers mm. in the organization versus the ones who said, do you know, after that 20 minutes, I just kind of saw things a bit clearer and I made better decisions and I felt a bit refreshed and I was able to think more clearly. And that meeting I was going into, I kind of mentally and subconsciously prepared for it. And so that preparing to perform time was just go sit and daydream, see what happens. We do it in our, in, in our enterprise transition program as well in ways of working is in the breaks between sessions, we make people leave their phones on the table because most of them are rushing out you know, in the, in the coffee, coffee break or the lunchtime to take care of some business. And we're like, no, just leave everything here. And when you've eaten, just look out of a window or go for a walk for 10, 15 minutes, see what happens. And they all come back and go, oh, my God, that was so powerful. But there's nothing like we're doing nothing, yeah. but it makes such a big difference. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Jimmy, we could we could talk forever, man. But these you're you're bringing home so many golden nuggets. I, I love so much of where the conversation is gone. I could talk to you, like I said, forever. Um, any well, let's let's wrap up by bringing back the book. Show everybody the book again. The book. Here it is. My pride and joy. I love it. So it's Beat Burnout, Ignite Performance, and then the Leader's Playbook for Building a High-Performance Team Culture. I yeah. love it. Jimmy, is there a particular link or place on your website where people can go currently to, like you said, get that discount on the book? Absolutely, yeah. If you just go to jimmyburrows.com slash book, uh, or just go to jimmyburrows.com and click the book button, it'll take you straight into the information page. It tells you all about how it works and why it works and and you know probably the interesting thing to say about it is it's not really it's not a novel it's not a book it's more like a recipe book or a playbook so what we essentially do is we unpack each of those five concepts that um, relate to burnout versus high performance we tell you a little bit about why they are we share a case study or a story from real life, which is like, here's how this one unpacked. And then we say, and if you want to do it, here's how you do it. And it's literally like a recipe card. So this is what success looks like. And here's the step. Say this, ask this, write this on a whiteboard, do this. Super practical. Because what we know is that leaders who are in this space probably don't have the headspace to try and plan something. So we're like, if you could just follow a recipe, that would make it easy, right? So let's go do that. So all you've got to do is get the book, read each section, which is about 15 to 20 pages per section, and then just ask the questions or do the things at the end of the section, and then you'll see some difference. So good, so good. Well, thanks again for your time, Jimmy. Thank you. All right, that'll do it for this week, everybody. See you next one week on the Business Growth Advantage. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Business Growth Advantage with me, Joey C. Vitale. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see y'all next week. Learn that.